Yesterday was Valentine's Day, which means a little bit of poetry is in order for the congregation that I so dearly love. Roses are red, violets are blue. I think that's enough poetry for me, don't you? Um, we, we use different forms of communication to communicate different things. The, the poetic form has often been used as a way to communicate one's romantic feelings. Uh, it has been used to communicate other things as well, but when, normally when people think about poetry, uh, they, they think about romance. Uh, poetry obviously falls into a category of communication that is written or spoken, but there are other forms of communication as well, such as nonverbal communication. Maybe you've seen some nonverbal communication from a fellow driver on the road in different ways. Um, different forms and different methods of communication are more suitable conduits for different kinds of messages and situations. And, and we know this through our own life experience. There are some things that you just can't say in a text message or even in a letter, uh, but must instead be delivered in person. And there are some messages that we'd rather you not deliver in person, but instead we'd, we'd rather just take a phone call from you. And there are, are as I said, there, there are different forms and methods of communication and, and more suitable conduits for different kinds of messages and situations. In, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses a form of communication suited to his situation and suited to his message. Jesus speaks in parables, and he has a reason for doing so. You may not know it, but Jesus' parables make up approximately one-third of his teaching in the New Testament. And so it's important for us to understand this method of Jesus' teaching and his message. And Lord willing, that's what we'll consider together this morning as we study God's Word. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 818. 818. Matthew is an evangelist at heart. And so his aim and purpose in writing this gospel, this account of Jesus' life and ministry, is to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah that the Old Testament promised and prophesied about and pointed forward to. Matthew has proven his case in several different ways throughout his gospel so far, but his main attestations of proof are of Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy, His powerful words, and His powerful works, those miracles that He has performed. In our last study of Matthew's Gospel, particularly in Matthew chapters 11 and 12, we noticed a growing opposition to Jesus. That growing opposition is the backdrop of the growing kingdom that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 13. To, to put it differently, Growing opposition is the context in which the kingdom grows. Notice how Matthew begins there in chapter 13. Read Matthew chapter 13 verses 1 and 2 there. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. Now the very next verse explains that Jesus began to teach them in parables. And we'll consider that parable a little bit later. But notice how chapter 13 begins. It begins with a connection to the previous section. 
Matthew tells us that Jesus' teaching and parables took place on that same day. What happened on that same day? What took place just before Jesus' teaching? Jesus healed a man possessed by a demon and the Jewish religious leaders accused him of being in cahoots with Satan. They spoke evil of Jesus. The, the Jewish religious leaders demanded a sign from him even though Jesus had just graciously relieved a man of demon possession. They were blind and they could not see the truth about Jesus. It is in the face of this opposition that Jesus begins to speak in parables. These parables are all about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And by that I mean through these parables, Jesus reveals the true nature of the hearts of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He reveals that the kingdom will grow. That at the judgment, the children of the king will be joyfully welcomed home. And that the value of the kingdom is worth all that we have and all that we are. Those themes will form the outline of the rest of this sermon. Which you can find, I believe, on an insert there in your bulletin. Um, now before we dive into Jesus' parables themselves, let's first consider what parables are and why Jesus spoke in them. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is the first point that we want to consider together. Jesus reveals the purpose of parables. Jesus reveals the purpose of parables. A parable is a form of teaching in which things are placed side by side. That's literally what the Greek word means, putting things side by side. A parable is like an analogy. For example, many of the parables begin with Jesus saying something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Or, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Jesus uses that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, at least five times in Matthew chapter 13. A parable is a story or an analogy that teaches a moral or spiritual truth. The spiritual truths clothed in the parables are meant to call forth a response from us. Which means that we cannot be indifferent to what Jesus says here. And the main key to interpreting Jesus' parables is to follow Jesus' lead in the interpretation of His parables. In many instances, He gives us the meaning of His parables. His parables are mostly analogies, similitudes, or stories which communicate, which communicate spiritual truth in such a way as to help those listening or reading see the truth from a slightly different perspective. In other words, Jesus could say, being a member of the kingdom is worth everything. Or, he could tell the parable of the hidden treasure. Teaching in parables is a useful form of communication because we as human beings are drawn in by illustrations and stories. And sometimes we remember the truth better in connection with them with those illustrations and stories. That's one reason for speaking in parables. But in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, Jesus offers another reason for speaking in parables. Skip down to Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. And begin reading there. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them... It has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, 
and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, the prophecy, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now these verses, they obviously come on the heels of Jesus' opening parable. In Matthew 13, Jesus' disciples want to know why Jesus has begun to teach in parabolic form. So they ask him in verse 10, why do you speak in parables? According to Jesus, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to some, but not others. Jesus, we see that right there in verse 11, Jesus tells his disciples that the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to them. This is part of the reason that Jesus speaks in parables. Jesus' form of teaching is disguising a spiritual truth in a story. And that spiritual truth is meant to be revealed to the disciples, but not to others. I don't know about you, but this uh, makes me think back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them. To little children. God has His purposes in revealing spiritual truth to some and not others. And we need to remember that He is gracious to reveal His truth to any at all. So one of the reasons that Jesus speaks in parables is so that the secrets of the kingdom might be revealed to those whom the Father has chosen. This is the positive side of Jesus' reason for speaking in parables. But there is also a negative side. In verse 13, Jesus states his reason for speaking in parables negatively. He says, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. To make his point clear, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6, which describes Isaiah's call to ministry. And it describes what type of ministry he would have. Isaiah was a prophet who was called to preach to people who were spiritually deaf. They would stubbornly reject God's message to them. And just as Isaiah's hearers refused to listen to Isaiah, so Jesus' hearers would refuse to listen to him. Notice who Isaiah, and Jesus approvingly quoting of Isaiah, says is responsible for their lack of hearing. See it right there at the end of verse 15 when he says, And their eyes they have closed. Those who fail to see that Jesus is the Messiah are responsible for their failure to see. They have voluntarily closed their eyes to Him. And this emphasis is akin to what our church's statement of faith says in Article 6. Quote, Nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. Here in Matthew 13, we see God's divine sovereignty and man's responsibility held side by side in Jesus' teaching without Him feeling any kind of contradiction at all. God reveals the kingdom to some, and He conceals it 
from others. Such a truth is not meant to drive us into philosophical speculation, but to God the Father, to praise Him for His grace and mercy that He has revealed the truth about His Son to so many, and to pray that He will reveal the truth about His Son to more. There's another reason that Jesus speaks in parables, and that is to fulfill prophecy. Skip ahead in Matthew 13 and take a look at verses 34 and 35. Read Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Here we have not so much another reason given by Jesus as another reason that Jesus speaks in parables given by Matthew. And Matthew's reason doesn't contradict Jesus' reason for speaking in parables. Rather, Matthew is just showing us that there's another reason that Jesus spoke in parables. And that, that reason, was to fulfill prophecy. And this particular prophecy was found in Psalm 78, verse 2. This kind of statement from Matthew once again shows us that, that he has a goal in writing this gospel. His goal is to persuade his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. That it pointed forward to and anticipated. You know, Matthew's Jewish readers, they would have been reading along hearing Jesus teaching, reading His teaching in parables and thinking to themselves, okay, so, so Jesus is teaching in parables. So what? This is Matthew interjecting and saying, don't you see? Don't you see the Old Testament Scripture said that the Messiah, that He would teach in parables. This is what Jesus is doing. Remember Psalm 78. This is what Jesus is doing. He's the Messiah. So there are two reasons that Jesus teaches in parables. First, Jesus teaches in parables so that God the Father can do His work of revealing the kingdom to His children and concealing the kingdom from His enemies. Second, Jesus teaches in parables so that the Old Testament prophecies about Him might be fulfilled and we might see that He is indeed our Messiah, our Savior, and our hope. Well, by now I hope that you're asking yourself, what does Jesus reveal in and through His parables? Well, the first thing that Jesus reveals through these parables is the condition of our hearts. This is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. Jesus reveals our hearts. And as we consider this, read Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about Him. So He got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, that's a pretty straightforward parable, isn't it? Jesus told his hearers that there was a farmer who scattered seed on four different types of soil. And then Jesus described what, what happened 
with the seed that fell on the different types of soil. If you skip down to verse 18, you'll see Jesus teaches His disciples and us what this really means. Read Matthew chapter 13, beginning there in verse 18. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and prove it, prove, and it proves unfruitful. As for what has been sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. I wonder if you see and understand what Jesus is saying here. The seed was the word of the kingdom. The, the farmer was attempting to sow the word of the kingdom into the hearts of all kinds of men. But only one kind of man understands the word. Verse 23. We know that because he's the only one who bore lasting fruit. His heart and his heart alone was good soil. Jesus gives us all kinds of reasons why the other soils did not receive the word. They were overcome in one way or another by the world, by the flesh, by the devil. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't tell us why the good soil is good. Apparently you only know good soil is good when a lasting and multiplying crop is produced. And you only know bad soil is bad when there is no crop, or if there is a crop that springs up but doesn't last. I wonder if this understanding of, of this parable of the soils is new to you. That only one of these soils represents tr the hearts of true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants His hearers, thus, to do some serious self-examination of our hearts. He wants them and us to look at the soil of, of our hearts and see if they are truly receiving His message, if they're truly receiving Him. If they are, then there will be clear and lasting evidence of that truth, of that reception. There will be a harvest in our lives. There are a couple of things that we need to pause and take note of here and apply. The first point that needs to be driven home again is that Jesus thinks that there is only one kind of good soil. And it is a heart that receives the word about Him and produces fruit season after season. Some have wrongly thought that the, the rocky ground soil is representative of an immature Christian. But in fact, it is representative of someone who is not a Christian at all. Jesus says in John 6.39 that He will not lose one of the Father, anyone of whom the Father has given to Him. So if you're in Christ, you cannot fall away from Jesus. Because as we sung this morning, He will hold you fast. Those who fall away were never really in Christ or held by Him to begin with. 
perseverance and bearing fruit as we confess this morning. Perseverance and bearing fruit is the grand mark which distinguishes true Christians from superficial professors. It is also important to point out here that this parable seems to indicate that being a Christian is not a private matter. There is a clear crop produced. Following Jesus is most certainly a personal matter, but following Jesus is not a private matter for any Christian. It is a public matter. That's why baptism exists, where we publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the church exists, where we gather together week in and week out and express that we are trusting in Christ. That's why the Lord's Supper exists. Jesus says you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. When we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming that we are trusting in Jesus Christ publicly, His life and His death for us. Another application that I think we as a church can and should take away from this parable is that we should proactively share with each other ways in which we see each other growing and bearing fruit. So if you see another brother or sister in Christ growing and bearing fruit, be sure to encourage them. Sometimes it's hard to see the fruit that the Lord is bearing in our own lives. Sometimes we feel like we're failures in following Christ. But other brothers and sisters in Christ might see ways in which the Lord is at work in our lives and growing us. And we need that encouragement to keep persevering in the faith. There's one final application that I want to make from this text, and that's this. Scatter the seed of the gospel liberally. Give the gospel to anyone and everyone who will listen. You and I don't know which hearts are good soil and which are not. That is not for us to know. The kingdom grows by scattering seed. That's the means that the Lord uses. So don't worry about what kind of soil the seed falls on. Trust that God will make His seed powerful and effective in the soil of the hearts which He makes good. When you think of the odds of three to one, it doesn't instill much confidence for the future growth of the kingdom, does it? It's true that Jesus has said that the crop coming from good soil would be significant. In some cases, it would be a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. And yet, given the opposition that Jesus has already described, and that Jesus himself faced, we might be left to wonder if the kingdom really has a real chance at growth in this difficult environment. In the difficult environment where the, the world is pulling strongly, the devil is hard at work and our own flesh is waging war within us. In the next series of parables, we're going to look at that. And Jesus assures us that we will see the kingdom of heaven grow. This is the third point that we want to consider together. Jesus reveals the growth of the kingdom. As we consider this truth, read Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. Verses 31 to 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come 
and make its nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Here we have uh, two parables side by side, the meaning of which I think is plain. Jesus again wants to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. And so he draws out another parable. It's another seed analogy, the first one there. Uh, but it, it's on, it, the focus is not on the soil, as in the, the parable of the sower. And it's not on the power or the persistence of the seed, but it's on the size of the seed. That's why Jesus is sure to underscore the fact that the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds. And then he brings in a quick and sharp contrast to that word but. But, uh, it, it may have begun as the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. This change in size is meant to illustrate the nature of the kingdom. It will begin incredibly small, but it will grow to massive proportions. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? And think about the leaven. That's what happens with leaven, isn't it? You add leaven to, to yeast or dough in order to make it rise and expand. These two parables, though using different imagery, communicate the same thing. that The kingdom of God will grow. And that's what happened with the disciples in their preaching of the gospel, isn't it? The kingdom began when the king planted his seed. The king delivered his message of salvation to 12 men. And they took his message and delivered it to men and women all over their known world. And since that time, the gospel has run to reach millions of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And it continues to run today. The gospel advances in this world, all over this world. But it grows up alongside something else that's growing too. Weeds. That's what we see in the parable of the weeds. Read Matthew chapter 13. Start there in verse 24. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not know... Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell, you, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus loves these, these seed and sowing images, doesn't he? So here we have another parable where man is sowing seed, good seed, in fact. Uh, but this scene is different from the one we saw in the parable of the sower. Here, it is not just one farmer or sower, but two. And Jesus describes the second one as an enemy. Sometime later, the, feed, the field begins to, to show the fruit of what was sown in it. And the man's servants, they, they ask him if he sowed good seed in the field. They wonder, how could there be a bad crop or, or these weeds if he had sowed good seed? 
The man surmises that an enemy has done this. So seeking to find a solution to the problem, the servants offer to go up and pull up the weeds. The farmer, he's concerned that this would damage his crop. And so he instructs them not to do that, but instead to just be patient, wait for the right time, wait for the harvest. He instructs them, then you'll gather the weeds in the crop. The harvest time, the weeds in the crop will be easily separated. The weeds will be carried off to be burned, but the wheat will be separated and brought into the barn. And just as his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were interested in the meaning of the parable of the sower, so they are interested also in the meaning of the parable of the weeds. So Jesus explains it to them there in verse 36. Read verses 36 to 40 with me. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. And the reapers are angels. Jesus' explanation obviously continues to go on. Uh, and we'll think about the remainder of his explanation in just a moment. But for now, I just want to pause and consider the context of the growth of the kingdom. Here's a parable about Jesus himself. He places himself inside the meaning of the parable. He says that the Son of Man, that's him, that's his messianic title. The Son of Man is the one who sows the good seed. And he tells us where he has done it. In the world. And another contrast is presented. In the field of the world there are children of the kingdom and there are children of the evil one. They live side by side in the field of the world. Not the church, but the world. The field is the world. And this is where Christians grow up and live. It is where sons of the evil one grow up and live too. And what is interesting is that Jesus views our presence, Christians' presence, in this world as for our good. Remember back to verses 29 and 30, where the farmer opposed pulling up the weeds because it was too soon for them to be brought up as well. You know, many Christians today are fearful of the cultural shifts that are taking place. And I think we would all do well to remember this parable and Jesus' instructions here. The Lord has not taken us out of our environment, out of this world, because there is yet more growth to take place in our lives. And regardless of what is going on in our world, we can be sure that if we still remain in the world, the, the, the Lord still has work to do in us and through us. There's one more thing that's interesting about this parable. And that is this, kingdom growth is described in the terms of good seed, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom, actual people. This is how the kingdom of God grows, through people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of this that I'm very suspicious when people describe the growth of the kingdom or the advance of the kingdom in terms other than people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom grows and the kingdom advances when the king conquers rebellious hearts. Not when laws are changed. Not when certain political figures are elected. Not when the world particularly favors a Christian position on a social issue. Not when the debt is reduced or increased. The kingdom grows and the kingdom advances when the king conquers rebellious hearts and gives them the gifts of repentance and faith. 
Now, as we've learned in the parable of the weeds, the righteous and the wicked, they live side by side in the world. But that will not always be. For those, for, for the close of the age, the Son of Man will judge between the righteous and the wicked. At the last and great day of judgment, a solemn separation will take place, where the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. This is what Jesus reveals next. He reveals that judgment will come. This is the next point that we want to consider, that Jesus reveals that judgment and joy will come. And as we consider this, let's pick up with the remainder of Jesus' explanation of the parable of the weeds. Uh, read Matthew chapter 13, verse 40 to 43. Jesus says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The point of the parable is that while the righteous and the wicked grow up alongside one another in the field of the world, there's a radical and essential difference between them. And that difference is seen not only in this age. Remember, the servants could see the difference between the weeds and the wheat. The difference is seen not only in this age, but that difference between the righteous and the wicked will be fixed forever at the close of the age by the very one speaking this parable. The wicked will endure endless punishment. They will endure the fiery furnace which there, in which there will be endless weeping and gnashing of teeth. While the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, some have raised the objection that the judgment that Jesus describes here will be an endless punishment, but it surely must be. Jesus holds the judgment of the wicked in parallel to the joy of the righteous. However long the joy of the righteous endures, the judgment of the wicked will also endure. Unless you wish to cut short heaven, you cannot cut short hell. It is with this sobering reality and wonderful hope in view that Jesus utters the last words of verse 43. Jesus doesn't merely explain the point of the parable. He also announces the ethical implication of the parable. He says there, the end of verse 43, He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is calling for a spiritual hearing. If we really hear what Jesus has to say, then we will believe that He is the one who has the authority to say it and to call us to faith, to call us to spiritually hear. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, in the explanation of this parable, Jesus has just said that He has the power and authority to send angels to execute judgment on the wicked and to usher the righteous into the kingdom. Any and all who hear what Jesus is saying need to come to Him in faith in order to be forgiven and received into the kingdom. And he reinforces this through another parable, through the parable of the net. Take a look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50. Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Read those verses. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, 
Men drew it ashore and sat down and stood and sorted the, the good into containers, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus couldn't reveal the truth that judgment is coming with any greater clarity than he has in these parables. The close of the age is coming. Though the end has not yet come, it is coming. And when it does, Jesus Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution. A solemn separation will then take place and the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. And this judgment will fix forever the final state of men and women in heaven or hell. And as strange as it may seem, this is good news for those who trust in Jesus Christ. It is good news because the Savior will gather us to Himself. It is good news that one day Jesus will return and judge the world to set right all the wrongs that have occurred in this world. This is a glorious hope. When Jesus comes to judge, He will punish all of the egregious acts of violence committed in our world. He will judge and punish wicked terrorists, murderers, violent offenders, those who have preyed upon the poor, those who have harmed widows and orphans, all evil. He will judge, and it is a good thing that Jesus, the righteous one, will execute his judgment and justice upon the living and the dead. And this underscores the importance of knowing how we will be judged before him. We have all committed evil worthy of judgment. But if we come to Jesus Christ in faith and implore him for mercy, trusting in his righteousness, believing that he lived and died and rose again for us, taking the punishment that our sins deserved, then on the day of judgment and every day after that, we will shine like the sun. If you have not yet come to Jesus Christ in faith, if you have not turned from your sins and come to Him, then you need to recognize that this warning from Jesus is a gracious invitation to become a child of the kingdom of heaven. It is urgent that you do come to Jesus because we are not promised tomorrow. This judgment that Jesus speaks about can come at any moment He chooses he is the one who has the authority to send His angels. So this warning concerning His judgment is an urgent call to turn from your sins, to repent and believe. It is a call to believe that He lived the life that you have not lived, that I have not lived, that no one but He has lived, Him has lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. You need to believe that He died the death that your sins deserve and to believe that He was raised from the grave so that you might be forgiven and accepted as righteous in God's sight. This warning concerning the judgment of Jesus is a call for you to leave your wickedness and evil behind, to turn from your rebellion and to follow Jesus in faith. It is a call to stop living your way and to start living God's way. Following Jesus means giving up a lot. In fact, it means giving up everything. It means giving up your life to Him. And Jesus wants you to know this. He wants you to know 
that that sacrifice is worth it. There is nothing more valuable than the kingdom itself. This is what Jesus reveals next in the next set of parables. Jesus reveals the value of the kingdom. Read Matthew chapter 13 verse 44. Jesus reveals the value of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Here Jesus is telling us the surpassing value or worth of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is worth all that we have and all that we are. I remember a, a number of years ago seeing a video, kind of a short film, which put this parable into a modern day scenario. If my memory serves me correctly, this, this man, he's a, I think he's a real estate agent of some kind, uh, he stumbles upon a, kind of an abandoned property, an apparently worthless, run-down piece of property. Um, he, he goes on to the property, but he soon discovers that a black liquid is bubbling up from the ground on this property. He quietly takes a sample of it to his friend who's a scientist, and it turns out, as you probably guessed, that it's oil. The property has this massive underground oil reservoir, this abandoned piece of property that nobody cares about or wants. And the rest of the video, it shows this man trying to persuade his wife and children to sell absolutely everything in their house. Everything from the pictures on their walls to the junk in their junk drawer to the baby's crib, everything. And then to sell the house itself. And his wife eventually is persuaded but his neighbors at this yard sale, they think that he's just lost his mind. Here's a man who is giving up everything that he has built in his life and built his life upon for an apparently worthless piece of property. The truth is, is that he knows the value of the property. And the video concludes with kind of a news anchor man stating what took place that he was now in negotiations with the three world's largest oil producers. It's a cute video. Uh, and it does set this parable into terms which we might more easily identify with. Now to be sure, we can't, we can't buy the kingdom like we can buy a, piece of, uh, buy a field or a piece of real estate. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that the kingdom of heaven is worth all that we have and are. It's worth the cost of following Jesus. It's worth the cost of hardship in this world of weeds. Children, it's worth the cost of you being seen as uncool or unliked, unpopular. Sometimes it's worth the cost of not taking that promotion so that you can have more time to serve Christ. It's worth being ostracized and ridiculed, being called narrow-minded and persecuted. It's not easy to be a Christian in this world. It's not easy to give up the esteem of the world, which you so naturally want. We want people to like us and think well of us and think that the decisions that we're making are wise and judicious. It's not easy to give up the esteem of the world. But if we know the true surpassing value of the kingdom, then we will count it all joy. When we face trials of various kinds. For we know that the reward of the kingdom infinitely outweighs the cost of discipleship. 
Momentary trials, though painful, are far outweighed by eternal, endless joy. And Jesus makes this same point through the lens of another parable, the pearl of great price. Read Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here again is a man who recognizes the supreme value of the kingdom of heaven. The question that these parables confront us with is, have we recognized the surpassing value of the kingdom? Here Jesus reveals to us the kingdom is worth everything. Do we understand what Jesus is saying? Do we believe it? Do you believe Him? Are you willing to lose everything for the sake of Jesus Christ? Can you say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order. Listen to what He says. In order that I might gain Christ. Is Jesus that valuable to you? Do you realize how valuable the gospel of the kingdom is? Do you realize how valuable the king is? If you do, then you will embrace Jesus and faith and follow him through trials and tribulations. And you will do something else too. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. I'd like us to conclude by reflecting on the last two verses of our passage. Matthew 13, verses 51 and 52. Read those verses. Read Matthew 13, 51 and 52. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I love the question that Jesus asks his disciples. He asks, have you understood all these things? It's like, okay, guys, got it? Huh? Yeah? And what do they say? Just real simple, unqualified. Yes, we, we got it. It's good here. We understand what you're saying. How would you answer that question? I, I hope that you would answer yes along with the disciples. In verse 52, Jesus then tells the disciples the obligation that this understanding places upon them. If the king and his kingdom have been revealed to you, then you, you're like a master of a house entrusted with great treasure. But you must bring that treasure out and share it. That's what Jesus is saying. If you've been given understanding concerning the kingdom, if you get the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven, if you have found that great treasure and the pearl of great price, you're to give that rich treasure away to others. Have you understood all of these things? If so, then give the gospel of the kingdom away. Let's pray together.